Well, we left off last week with the stunning realization that Noah's Ark landed, signaling a new beginning of life on earth on the same month and the same day that Jesus resurrected. And the Jewish calendar, like our calendar, has 12 months to it, and each of the 12 months has a different name. And the seventh month in the Jewish calendar is the month of Nisan. And it's on the 17th day of the seventh month, Nisan, that the ark rested. Well, on that same day, Nisan the 14th was Passover. So three days after Passover was when Jesus resurrected from the grave. The same exact day that the Bible tells us that the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Now, some might look at that and say, well, that's just a coincidence. You know, it's interesting to point out, but it's a biblical coincidence that it just happened to be the same day. I've come to the place in my life and in my study where I no longer believe in biblical coincidences. There are just too many things that connect, too many places that tie together. Let me give you a couple of examples as we start tonight. What if I asked you to construct a genealogy? Okay? We're all going to pull out a piece of paper tonight, and you're going to make up, just off the top of your head, you're going to make up a genealogy, a list of names. And in that genealogy, every single one of the words had to be divisible by seven evenly. Do you think you could do it? But now, not only do the number of words need to be divisible by seven. So let's say the genealogy, you had 49 names in it. Okay, you got 49 words, that's divisible by seven. Okay, I could do that. Not only do the number of words need to be divisible by seven, but the total number of letters need to be divisible by seven as well. And the number of vowels need to be divisible by seven. The number of consonants need to be divisible by seven. The number of words beginning with vowels need to be divisible by seven. The number of words beginning with consonants divisible by seven. The number of words occurring more than once in the passage or in the genealogy would need to be divisible by seven. The number of words occurring in more than one form would need to be divisible by seven. The number of words occurring in only one form divisible by seven. Is this getting ridiculous yet? The number of nouns in your genealogy must be divisible by seven. The number of words that are not nouns must be divisible by seven. The number of nouns that are not names must be exactly seven. And the number of male names in your genealogy must be divisible by seven. And the number of generations must be 21, again, divisible by seven. Do you think you could do that? No. Okay. That's the genealogy of Jesus Christ written in the Greek in Matthew chapters one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Coincidence that all of those words, number, letters, consonants, vowels, all of that, everything divisible by seven. Now, especially when you consider, consider the fact, as you're going to see tonight, that in Scripture the number seven is hugely important to God. It comes up over and over and over and over. When I read that, it blew my mind. God's fingerprints, folks, are all over the Bible. Now, we can say, just from a cursory reading of Scripture, you can say, wow, this is pretty amazing stuff, how it fits together. And as you begin to study Scripture and get into it more and more, you can see how this, this couldn't have been written by you know, all these different people unless there was some divine oversight. But when you go even deeper than that, you begin to discover God's fingerprints, His signature is in and among scripture. I mentioned a psalm when we were praying. Proverbs or Proverbs 25.2 It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings 
is to search out a matter. So Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 in the genealogy of Jesus, all those things that we mentioned are all divisible by seven and it's mind-blowing. Let me give you one more thing that I think is just fascinating. We were just talking a few minutes ago about um, equidistant letter sequencing. I don't know if you've heard of this, ELS. And it's a, it's a real controversial thing out there, and it has to do with something I'm sure that you have heard of, and that's the Bible codes. There are many books out called the Biblical Codes or Codes in the Scripture, and especially around the time of 9-11, there were people saying, hey, that was in Scripture. Not, not written out specifically, but if you take this letter out of this sentence and that letter out of that sentence and you kind of tie it all the way down the page, it says, you know, two towers will fall September 11th. And, and there were a lot of kind of crazy things that were said and people pointing toward the Bible as being a book of codes beyond just what's written. John Nash. Yeah. Now, there are the crazy nutty people out there, as, as Satanists want to do, he will take anything that is legitimate and try to illegitimize it by making it strange or nutty or out there. But there is legitimate proof behind this idea of equidistant letter sequencing in the Bible. Biblical codes. And I'm going to give you one right now. There's a rabbi by the name of Michael Ben Weismandel who became, as a boy, he became fascinated at age 13 with the Bible, with all that was contained in Scripture and how it, he began to discover divinely ordered information that was embedded in the text of the Torah. Well, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in studying that, this, this rabbi spent literally hours and hours of his life, in fact, he spent 50 years of his life studying this stuff. He wrote over 43,000 pages of manuscript detailing all of the different codes that he had discovered in just the first five books of the Bible in the Torah. Let me give you one of them. Now reading the Hebrew from right to left, which is the way the Hebrew uh, language is written, in the opening verses of Genesis, he found the following information. He discovered that beginning with the first tau, which is the letter T in Hebrew, beginning with the first tau, if you count an interval of 49 letters, which 49 is divisible by seven. If you count 49 letters from the first T that, that appears in Genesis chapter one, you come up to the next letter, which is O, okay, or the, the Hebrew equivalent of O. Then you go 49 more letters from the O, and it brings you to the letter Resh, or R, in the Hebrew. Go 49 letters from there, and you land on the letter H in Hebrew, spelling out the word Torah. T-O-R-H in the Hebrew is how Torah is spelled. The first five books of the Bible being the Torah. Now you can look at that and say, all right, that's coincidental. You're right, that, and it, I mean, it just happens once. That's a little weird, a little coincidental. Then you go to the book of Exodus, and you start with the first tau in Exodus. Travel 49 letters, and the next letter you'll get to is O. Travel 49 letters, and you get to R. Travel 49 letters, and you get to H. Genesis, it spells out Torah. Exodus spells out Torah. Now, you get to Leviticus, the third book, and it doesn't work. Okay, so it obviously just blows the whole idea. Skip Leviticus and go on to the next book. You get on to Numbers. And something interesting was discovered. If you begin in Numbers with the first H, the first letter H, and travel 49 letters, you get to an R. Travel 49 letters, you get to an O. Travel 49 letters, you get to the T. It's Torah backwards in the book of Numbers. 
Go to Deuteronomy, and the same exact thing happens. Torah, backwards, starting with the H to the R to the O to the T. So what you have is Genesis, Exodus, Torah, Torah, Leviticus, nothing. Then you've got Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah, Torah, backwards. In Leviticus, it's something a little different. When you find the first, the letter Yod, or the Y, in Leviticus, and add, the, add do the same thing, 49 letters, you come up with Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. What does that mean? Well, if you write it out like I did here, basically it shows the Torah points to Yahweh in the first five books of the Bible. Now, there are those who would look at that and they'd go, okay, that's just a weird coincidence. It's kind of hard to think of something like that as coincidental. Because in each one of these books, this equidistant letter sequencing, you're talking 49 letters, divisible by 7, from one letter to the next, Genesis, Exodus, Torah, Torah, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah, Torah, all pointing to what's written in Leviticus, which is Yahweh. The Torah points to Yahweh. Like I said, I don't really believe in coincidence in Scripture. I'm to the point in my own Bible study where not only do I believe, and I've said this before, but not only do I believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and that all of the books of the Bible are the inspired Word of God, but I believe that every chapter of every book is the inspired Word of God, that every sentence of every chapter is inspired by God, that every word of every chapter is inspired by God, and yes, I believe that every letter of every word, of every chapter, of every sentence, of every chapter, of every book in the Bible is all inspired by God. When you begin to read things like Matthew 1, 1 through 11, and understand that God had the genealogy written in such a way that the whole thing was all divisible by seven, it's, it's mind-blowing. A human being could not do that. By the way, with Matthew, if Matthew were smart enough to figure that out, and they say it would take, uh, it would take like 40,000 supercomputers working 3.7 million years, something like that, to be able to come up with anything even close, half of what it took to make chapter one work. That's if you could change the names. Yeah. But it, it, it's just, it's mind-boggling. Matthew would have had to also write his book last because he would have had to be very careful that he didn't do, wait a minute, I'm... I've read so much of this stuff this last week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one thing that's interesting is that in all four of those Gospels, that they each use 42 specific words in each of the Gospels that are not used anywhere else in Scripture. 42 is divisible by 7. For Matthew to have done it and pulled it off would have been difficult, but he would have been the la- had to have been the last one to write his Gospel so he could see what was in all the other Gospels and make sure that he didn't overwrite them, you know. And anyway, it's interesting stuff. It's, it's mind-boggling stuff. I start with it tonight, though, for one specific reason. We're going to see a couple more things in Genesis chapter 8, having to do with dates. Now, last week we saw that the ark actually touched ground at the same day, the same Jewish calendar date that Jesus resurrected from the dead, that the ark landed on the new earth, the same day that Jesus resurrected to bring new life. Now, you can look at something like that, and you can call it a coincidence. Or you can step back and see that God is speaking throughout Scripture about the significant events, the things that matter. 
Everything that God writes is for a purpose. And I believe you'll see the same thing tonight. Let's look again at verse 5 and move on. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month, and in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountain became visible. Now, I didn't take time to study the tenth day and the first day of the tenth month. If you want to do that, please feel free to get back to me on it. Verse 6. Then it came about at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. And then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark. For the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he brought out his hand, and he took her, and he brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent the dove out from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf, so Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Verse 12, Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Something interesting here is you've got two very graphic illustrations of, of the way life is on planet earth just based on the two creatures, the two birds that Noah sent out from the ark. First he sent out the raven. Now understand that a raven is not the most positive bird in scripture. First of all, it made the short list of unclean birds that are by God's standard detestable and not to be eaten. You can check that out in Leviticus chapter 11 verse 15. The raven was among a, a handful of birds that you are not supposed to have anything to do with because it's an unclean bird. Matthew chapter 13 verse 3 tells us something else, not just about ravens but about birds in general. Folks, birds in scripture tend to be a type of evil. Birds are a representation of evil in Scripture. Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 3 says, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Now, the picture there that Jesus is giving in that parable is that the seed is, is the Word. The seed is the Word of God. That the soil is the heart of man. And as the seed falls on the soil, something negative happens with some people. The seed is snatched up. It's eaten up. By what? By birds. Birds are a picture of a negative influence in that parable. But let me give you a little bit more. You may have heard the parable where Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven, the growth of the kingdom to a mustard seed. And what's often told in, in the use of that parable is that the, the growth of the kingdom like a mustard seed is indicating that the kingdom is just going to be huge. And that's a good thing. The problem is that the meaning is not as obvious as that. Luke chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus is talking about the mustard seed. He said, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and he threw into his own garden, and it grew, and it became a great tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, a lot of Bible teachers, and I've heard it in different messages growing up, People will look at that and say, see, the kingdom is big enough for everyone. The tree, the mustard seed tree, is going to grow huge, and the birds can come, and they can rest in the branches. The problem is that birds are not a symbol of good. They're a symbol of evil. What Jesus is talking about, I believe, in this parable, is not a good thing. He's saying the kingdom on earth is going to grow and spread. The church is going to grow up, but beware. Birds are going to nest in the branches. In the same way that he told the parable of the wheat and the tares, that the wheat grows up, but the weeds, the tares, grow up right with it, right alongside it, right among it. 
You need to be aware. Now, now how do we know that that's what Jesus is really talking about? We know it because of the context. Because the very next parable he tells, he says, again, this is Luke 13, verse 20, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, a Jewish mind would understand immediately leaven is evil. Leaven is a symbol of evil. That's why the Israelites were told unleavened bread. In fact, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, even today among Jews, part of the game that is played with Jewish children is to get rid of all the leaven throughout the entire household. If there's a speck of leaven, it cannot be there. It's got to be taken out because leaven for a Jew is a symbol of evil. And so Jesus comes along talking to Jews and he says the kingdom of God is like leaven. Well, the kingdom's not evil, is it? But it's what, what's going to happen with the growth of the kingdom is leaven's going to get in there. Now, we have, I've had some conversations, Steve and I were talking recently just about the church and what's happening in the church today. And, and, and that conversation concerned me. Because what we're seeing happen all across the board in churches is that churches are denying the pure food, the pure word of God, the manna of God, and they're going after the leaven of mankind. That they're trying to make church more palatable and, and in so doing they're denying the truth of scripture. Churches are heading in the direction of, as we've talked about it here before, apostasy. And Jesus in these parables is talking about this very thing. He's saying, look, the kingdom of God's going to grow. It's going to become vast. It will become huge. There will be Christians all across the face of the earth. But beware. Birds will nest in the branches and leaven will spread throughout the dough. So what is the Father going to do with that? Well, when the time comes for the harvest, He's going to pull out the wheat and He's going to leave the tares. The rapture in and of itself is, is a fantastic, wonderful way that God is going to pull out all which is faithful, all which is truly in a relationship with Jesus. He will pull out, leaving everything else, which is why in the end times, for those of you who have studied this, the end times church is going to be a horrid thing. Because all that is good right now, that is of the Holy Spirit in the church right now, will be gone. Anyway, I digress a little bit. To the Jewish mind, the bird was a picture of evil. And going back to the raven, the raven not only was a bird, but it was an unclean bird, not a pretty picture. Now, going back to the story of Noah, the first bird he sends out is a raven. Why? Was it just that the raven was expendable? Was there something there maybe more in, in the picture of the raven versus the dove? I believe that there is. Notice what Noah's raven does. It goes out, says it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. It never came back. Okay, so Noah sent the bird out, the raven. He, he let it go and off it flew. And it disappeared. Now, I'm just, this is a little bit of surmiser on my part, but if it never came back, it had to land somewhere on something. And if there was nowhere to land, if there was no land to land on, my guess is that it went from one bloated body of an animal to another, feasting its way around until the water went down. That it found its way around, that it survived feeding on and foraging on the death that was in the water. That's exactly what Satan does. Satan is a scavenger who feeds himself on wounded and dead things. The raven in this story is not only a representation of evil, but it's a representation of Satan on the earth. Flip in your Bibles real quickly over to the book of Job. 
Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 and verse 7. There? Job chapter 1, verse 7. Actually, we'll start in verse 6. Tells us there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Then the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. This is what Satan does. Like the raven that flew and went here and there until the waters dried up. This is how Satan spends his time, going here and there around the earth. Now skip over to chapter 2 of Job, starting in verse 1. Tells us again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. This is what Satan does. As he goes here and there, wreaking havoc and feeding on the lives of the wounded. At this point in the book of Job, Job was a wounded man. Satan had already inflicted some horrible pain in the life of Job, but now he wants to go even further. This is what Satan does. And I think we see a picture of this in the raven that Noah lets out of the ark. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 goes further. He says, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The raven. Now Noah also sent out a dove. And the dove is a fantastic story. To this day, what does a dove represent in our world? Peace. As a matter of fact, you've heard the phrase, oh, I extended an olive branch to somebody. I mean, even in our culture, we still cling to the story of Noah receiving back the dove with the olive branch in its mouth as a symbol for peace. Around Christmas time, you'll see flags or pictures or whatever of doves with olive branch in their mouth, and it comes right back from the, comes right out of the story of Noah. You may know that the dove is a symbol of peace, but if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you probably know that the dove is a symbol for something much more powerful than just peace. Symbol of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 after being baptized Jesus immediately came up from the water and behold the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending on him as a dove and lighting on him and behold a voice out of the heavens said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased now if you go back and read look at what happened with the dove he sent out the dove from him to see if water abated from the face of the land but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot so she returned to him into the ark for the water was on the surface of all the earth. And then he put out his hand, and he took her, and he brought her into the ark to himself. Remember, the raven never came back. The raven didn't really care what happened to Job. He was just out for himself. The dove came back. He goes on and it says that she returned to him. Uh, 
So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. He waited another seven days and sent out the dove, and this time she did not return to him again, indicating to Noah that it was time to get out of the ark, that things were good, that if the dove didn't come back the third time, that the water must be completely gone from the earth. Noah extended his hand, and he received the dove back into the ark, back to himself. And in the same way, folks, when we extend our hand and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to ourselves, we have a peace that is greater than any peace Noah ever had. Think about it as we go on tonight. Keep the thought in your mind of, of Noah as a real human being. Now, I keep mentioning that with each of the different people we've, we've covered so far in Genesis. Don't forget these are real human beings. Now, there's a lot of cool theological things and scriptural things and biblical things that we have discovered. But these are real people. What was it like for Noah, night after night, lying on his bunk in the ark, listening to the crashing of the waves outside, the pouring of the rain? Think about if that was you. I mean, I know myself, like we just had some serious storming over the, over the weekend and, and last few days, and late at night, lying in bed, just listening to the rain and, and thinking about things. Well, what if you were listening to the rain in the ark? And you knew that every living thing on planet Earth was gone was destroyed. Then it was you and the family and a bunch of animals. And that was it. Keep that in context as, as we study. Don't lose the human element of this story. Well, let's look at something else that happens with this dove. The dove was released on three different days. And that's very important. We just read that. The, the first day, the dove is released and she returned empty beak. And the second day, the dove is released and she returns olive leafed and the third day, the dove is released and she doesn't return because on that day, on the third day, the new world has now surfaced. Judgment is completely gone from the world on the third day. As the Bible tells us, the waters are completely dried up. What are the waters representing in the story of Noah and the ark? They represent judgment. God's judgment on the world. He used the waters to judge, to destroy so here we are on the third day. And again, what's significant about the third day? Jesus rose on the third day. Now, that may seem coincidental, again, but stay with me on this. We know that for three weeks the dove was working. For three weeks the dove was doing her thing. But literally speaking, we're only told about three days. What do you mean? When we first started um, the Wednesday night Bible study that I'm doing right now on Whidbey Island, about, well, it was, it was the third Wednesday night that we had met, and we were having a conversation with some of the people over there, or the family whose who's home that we're meeting in right now, and one of, her, one of the daughters, a 16-year-old girl, we were talking and, and saying, it's just amazing um, you know, how, how comfortable everybody's feeling right now, because we've only really known each other for three weeks. And she said, well, really, we've only known each other three days. Actually, probably about six hours if you add it up. Because it had been this Wednesday, and then this Wednesday, and then this Wednesday. Three days. Now it was over a span of three weeks, but we really only knew each other for three days. The Bible tells us about three days with this dove. Now, there are periods of seven days in between, but each one of these three days, the dove goes out, comes back. The dove goes out, comes back with the olive branch. The dove goes out on the third day. The three days are extremely significant as they are in Scripture. Now think about this for just a moment. 
Second Peter 3 8 tells us that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day with the Lord now make sure in the thousand year thing that you understand that's God's perspective not man's perspective okay a day is not like a thousand years to me to me a day is like a day but to God a day is like a thousand years now hold that thought follow closely on this one since the resurrection of Jesus according to God's perspective two days have gone by two thousand years and in that time the spirit has been at work in the world similar to the way the dove was at work in the world flying around trying to find land working trying to see is you know is judgment over coming back to Noah each time and the spirit's been at work in the world intimately through the church for the last two days from God's perspective the last two thousand years but on the third day something's going to happen now, I want to show you something that I think is really interesting go to Hosea the book of Hosea toward the latter end of the, New, of the Old Testament Hosea chapter 6 something amazing is going to happen on the third day from God's perspective remember two days, two thousand years have gone by from God's perspective the third thousand years from the resurrection of Jesus and remember, when was it that the ark rested at the top? It was on, on the, the same day that Jesus resurrected. So going out three days from that, from God's perspective. Are you with me? Am I, do I have you? Okay, I don't want to lose you on this because it's important. Going out three days from the resurrection, something amazing is coming from God's perspective. Okay? But take the Jewish word for it, not just mine. Look at verse 1 of Hosea chapter 6. This is God's people responding to God's rebuke. This is the Jewish response to God, but it's prophetic. Listen to what they say. Come, let us, Jews speaking, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Verse 2, he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. For two days, folks, the Jewish people have been torn. They have been nothing but torn. They have been the refuse of the world. They have been cast out and kicked and, and beaten. They have been torn for two days. But at the end of two days, God will revive. He will begin to revive the Jews again. And as we've talked about many times here, I think we're on the front end of that. We're seeing the revival of the Jews. Not spiritual yet, but we're at least seeing the, the physical revival of, of Judaism in, in the nation of Israel. We're seeing a resurgence of the Jews as a people like we haven't seen in over 1800 years. But on the third day, God will raise Israel back up. That is sometime shortly after the end of the first two days. Revelation chapter 7 verse 4 tells us, I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. Asher, 12,000. Naphtali, 12,000. Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From Judah, or from Joseph, 12,000. And from Benjamin, 12,000. The writer of Revelation is so specific so that there's no way that we can miss who it is that is sealed during this time called the tribulation at the end of the earth. 
He is so specific that he lists every single one of the 12 tribes of Israel so that we don't miss it. He doesn't just say that I'm going to seal sons from the tribe, from every tribe of Israel. He goes out and he lists all the tribes. What the Bible is telling us, what God is telling us, is that he will revive Israel in the last days, in that time, on the third day. Now, flip in your Bibles real quickly over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54, and I'm hoping this is all going to make sense to you when we get through it here. Isaiah 54. Verse 1. What I think this is pointing to, and the three specific days that the dove goes out and comes back, and, and if the dove is a type of the Holy Spirit, which we know it is, then what we have here in Genesis is a snapshot, a picture of what happens in God's program from the resurrection of Jesus until he comes again. And even on beyond that, the 2,000 year period that, that we're at the end of right now, from Jesus' resurrection to now, two days. The third day being the third thousandth year, which would be the millennium. It's one of the reasons why, as I've said before, I believe we're close. But listen to God's description of this. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Shout for joy, O barren one. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, for you have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Now God is talking to Israel. Has that ever happened in the history of Israel? Has what I've read happened to Israel? No, it hasn't. Nothing like it has happened to Israel. Reading on, verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Verse 5. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. That's how much God loves Israel. Verse 7, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. He says for a brief moment, I would suggest roughly two days. Going on, but with everlasting kind. oh wait, verse 8, in an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Verse 9, for this is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I had sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The divine fingerprint of God. That all the way back to Noah, who we know was a prophet, all the way back to the prophet Noah who sends out the dove and who, who actually, I believe, he plays out this, this picture of God's plan. That he lands, the ark lands on the 17th day of the 7th month, the same day, resurrection day. The ark lands and Noah begins to go through this process of letting out a dove. 
And he lets out the dove three times. And each time in between, he, he, he waits that magical number of seven days, which is that number of completion. A complete thousand years, and another complete thousand years. And then finally you get to the third day, which I think is representative of God doing something amazing that no one would have predicted. That he is restoring Israel, which is what he will do, the Bible tells us, in that time called the millennium. We'll go back to Genesis chapter 8. I'll leave you with that to chew on a little bit. If that just utterly confused you, then talk to me afterwards. We'll see if we can't both figure it out. Genesis chapter 8, verse 13. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth, and then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. Now, remember... Things in Scripture are there on purpose. Moses, who I think is the one who wrote the Torah, I think there's a strong indication for that. Moses is writing, why does Moses take the time to tell us that in Noah's 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, that the water was dried up? So what? I mean, was, is this just history? I'll tell you, folks, if the Bible is just history, we might as well close it and go home right now. I didn't enjoy history very much in high school myself. Not that big a history buff, unless history is taking me somewhere. If it's all about what's already happened, who gives a rip? But if it's about what's coming, then I want to know. Why are we told that it was the 601st year of Noah's life in the first month, on the first day of the month, that the water was dried up from the earth? Noah couldn't have known that, by the way. He could have looked out from the ark and seen all the land as far as his eyes could see was dried up. But he could not possibly have known that the water on the whole earth was dried up. We're told that by God. God wanted us to know that in his 601st year, on the first day of the first month of that year, on that particular day, finally, across the entire earth, all of the water that had been flooded was now dry. The ground was dry. Why? Why that day? As I thought about it this week, listen to this. What century is Noah in when the judgment is completely over? Noah's life. What century is he in? Look at the verse. He's in the seventh. He's not in the sixth. He's 600 years old, but he is now 600 years. What does it say? The first year, the first month, on the first of the month. He is into the 700th year of his life. Now, prophetically speaking, what would that say? If you stretch it out over the six days of creation, the seventh day is the day of rest, right? What's Noah's name mean, by the way? Anybody remember? It means rest. It means rest or comfort. Okay? Noah's name. Rest or comfort. God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, God rested. Noah turns he, he is into his 700th year now if the Bible told us that Noah was 700 years old and in the first day of the first month of Noah's 700th year the reality is he's no longer 700 now he's 800 or at least he's in his 800th uh, century thank you yeah Noah is in the 7th century of his life when the judgment was finished this may be I think, an indication that God will have us in the 7,000th year of the world's existence when His judgment is finished. 
the water was completely dried up on this particular day stretch that out over a thousand year periods and you have a picture a type of the end of judgment and the beginning of a millennial reign of Jesus which we know follows the tribulation listen seven is the father's favorite number in scripture as we already saw in the book of Matthew chapter 1 seven is the number this is a big deal to God and I often wonder growing up is it just because God likes seven it's just you know that's the number that God likes you know Hannah's favorite number right now is 11. She's 11 years old, so it's her favorite number, you know. And, and kids will pick a favorite number, maybe their team number. You know, my number was 10. When I played basketball, all the way from literally third grade through high school, I made sure to get the jersey that had 10 on it, because that was my number. That was the number that I always played with. Maybe if I'd had a higher number, I would have scored a little bit more. But that's beside the point. We all have our favorite numbers. Is that, is that all that's, that's to this number seven thing with God? Couldn't there possibly be something more? A reason why every time you turn around, things are either divisible by seven, the length of the tribulation is seven, you look throughout scripture, it's seven, 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 everywhere. Why? Personally, I think that God pre-planned Earth's lifespan. I think that what we see, and the reason we see seven in scripture is because seven being that complete number to the Lord, seven, I believe, is going to be the complete number of earth. The complete amount of time the planet in, in its present form and then its, its rejuvenated form, form will exist. Folks, it's, it's 6,000 years of labor on earth. Since Adam and Eve fell and, and God said, you're going to work for it now. You are going to labor. Your work is going to be hard. 6,000 years of labor. And then we're told about this thing, this span of time, this thousand year reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20, which is described as a time of rest, of comfort, of peace, of prosperity. Six days, rest on the seventh. 6,000 years, rest in the seventh thousand year. I personally believe that we're looking at yet another early indication of a much bigger picture. That when you see these little things and begin to connect the dots, you begin to put the puzzle pieces into place, what we're seeing here is God from very early on is indicating the length of earth. That he's indicating a time of peace. That he's indicating that there will be a day when judgment completely is over. When all the waters will be dried up. When all of the judgment of God will be spent. Will be done with. And we will then be able to enjoy rest under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In the first month, in the first day, in the first year of a brand new world. Verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God spoke to Noah saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wives and your sons and your sons' wives with you. And bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, and every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Now there's something interesting here. After the dove departed, just following the timeline here, when the dove departed, Noah waited another month to get out of the ark. Now Noah knew, the Bible tells us, on that day that the dove did not come back, Noah opened the windows and looked. Ground was dry. Everything was fine. Now I don't know about you, but if I had been in a boat with a bunch of animals and my family and that was it, 
Not that my family would be a problem, but if we were in a boat together for 100, 150 days, and then we sat on the top of Mount Ararat, you know, rocking back and forth, for another long span of time, the moment I saw the ground was dry, I'd be out of there. But wouldn't you? Doesn't it make human sense that you'd want to get yourself out of the ark? A little tired of this little boat trip? Why does Noah stay put? We're told that it was all dry. Verse 13. Everything was dried up from the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and he looked and behold the surface of the ground was dried up. He knew it was dry, but it was a solid month. Four more weeks of living in the ark. Before finally God had to say, Noah, get out. Let's go. Remove yourself from the boat. Why? A couple of thoughts. One possibility is that Noah was comfortable in his struggles. That Noah had gotten used to the ark. You know what fascinates me? When the people of Israel were taken into captivity in Babylon, and spent 70 years there as a punishment of God, when God finally made it possible for them to return to Jerusalem, to return to Israel, only a small number did. Most of them stayed in Babylon. Most of them were comfortable by then. They had spent 70 years planting their roots, sinking themselves down, getting used to a lifestyle, getting used to a way of being, enjoying pagan gods. <laughs> they had gotten to a point where they didn't want to go home. They didn't want to go back. You know, Tracy, as we were talking a few minutes ago, when you live in this life and, and you get comfortable, whether it's with your house or with your cars or with your things. I know Pat's not comfortable with his car tonight. <laughs> But you start to get comfortable with things, it's real easy not to want to go home. And I know for me, there have been times in my life where heaven to me was not something that interested me. Well, it interested me to a degree, but, but I always would think, not yet, Lord. Just, just a few more weeks. You know, when I was engaged to Cheryl, just wait until, you know, give me a week of marriage, you know, then show up. When, when we're about to have children, well, I just want to see what it's like to have kids. Give me just a little more time. But God does things in our lives. Right now, as many of you know, my life is just it's upside down. I, I, I kind of know from the next few months where we're going to be, but as, as I was putting stuff in storage yesterday, I'm thinking, I'm putting my stuff in storage. I don't, this is weird. I mean, I've always been a guy. I lived the first 18 years of my life in the same house with my mom and dad, and they're still in that house. Nothing changed. It was all solid, stable. Why would I want Jesus to come? I wasn't thinking about going home. I was home. And in the same way, the Israelites in captivity in Babylon, why would they want to go back? It's good here. And we've got all the things we need. We've got our lifestyle. We're comfortable. Our kids are in the, some of the best Babylonian schools. <laughs> why would I want to go back? Here's Noah in the ark. Now, after this long span of time, I'm sure they had gotten into a routine, kind of gotten into a groove. This is, this is how we do and live things. And we know what life is like in the ark. We're not sure what it's like out there. And we knew what it was like before the flood, but after the flood, who knows? It could be weird. Besides, we might find things out there. People. Um, animals. Dead people. Noah, I see dead people. <laughs> so, so maybe Noah was just comfortable in the ark. Which is why it took God finally to say, Noah, it's time to move on. 
Pick up your roots. Get out of the boat. This was a short-term deal. Folks, our lives are a short-term deal. God does not want us to be so focused on this life that we never want to get out of the ark, get out of the boat. Noah was comfortable in his struggles. Do you ever know one of those people who just seem to be happier when everything's going wrong? And we all have them. They're usually, you know, siblings or parents. There's usually someone, at least one person in all of our families. You guys can figure out in your families who it is. I know who it is in my family. I'm, not, I'm just kidding. There are people who seem to be more at home in their martyrdom than they are with their maker. That they would rather be in the victim mentality. And, and I saw this. It was really interesting. When I was studying psychology and, and doing counseling, there were people who would come in for counseling, and you just knew. I mean, there was almost a type. This was the person who, if everything was going fine in their family, they got really nervous. So they had to create chaos. And by creating chaos, disequilibrium, freaking everything out, then they were comfortable again because that's what they were used to growing up. And that's what they knew. My family was turmoil growing up, so now if everything is good and loving and warm and safe and protected, I'm not comfortable with that. i got to get back in the ark where it was dangerous, where I didn't know what was going on in the outside world. I, Noah was comfortable in his struggles. Folks, the thing about that, and, and you see this a lot of times with, with Christians, people who, who come to the Lord and, and they, they begin to experience God's blessings. And as these very blessings of God are showered onto their lives, they can't accept them. So they begin to sabotage them. It's like, I don't deserve to be blessed by God. I mean, I'm a sinner. One of the true things about becoming a Christian is that you recognize your need, right? That before we can actually accept Jesus, we have to recognize that we are failures. And once you've recognized that you're a failure, it's kind of a catch-22 because then, okay, I know I'm a failure, so God starts to shower blessings on me, but now I'm going, but I'm a failure. Why would God love me? When I recognize the sin in my life, why would He care about me? I don't know if I can handle this kind of love when I don't deserve it, which is the whole point that we don't deserve it. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11, I think this is fascinating. Paul said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Usually when we read this passage, we think of it from the negative perspective. We think, Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means. I know in every circumstance, I've learned the secret, the, the, the secret, secret of being hungry and of suffering. And then we read that famous verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And many times this verse is held up as, man, you can handle your struggles. You can handle the pain. You can handle your problems because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You know what else you can do through Christ who strengthens you? You can enjoy blessing. You can handle being given things. You can enjoy the life that God has given you. But folks, it runs both ways. We're not called as believers to be comfortable in our struggles only, but also to be comfortable in the blessings. To move out into the new world and experience the grace of God there as well. Paul says it this way, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. Now, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel, don't get me wrong. But God does want to bless His children. God does want to give good things to his children. That's what he's about. He wants to bless you. And being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean just going around thinking about how bad you are and, and when struggles come along just hanging on, you know, we're going to make it. Sometimes God just wants you to enjoy the day. It's a sunny day. Have a nice day. 
Nothing bad's going to come your way today. Maybe for six months of your life, everything's been going perfectly well. You've been happy and healthy. Everything's great. And as a Christian, you start to go, oh no, the struggle is going to come. Is that ark nearby? Because the floods may return. And God's going, enjoy the day. I want to bless you. Paul says, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. I know what the secret is of having abundance and suffering need. Yes, I know how to hold on to Christ when I'm suffering. I also know how to hold on to Christ when I have abundance, when I have blessing. You see, folks, it's both. Paul is saying we got to know how to do both. The secret of, of doing all things through Christ is both in, in plenty and in need, I'm still clinging to Christ. When I have the house on the hill and everything is fantastic, I am still clinging to Christ just like I do when everything is falling to pieces around me. Either way, the secret of life and contentment is in Christ, whether you have plenty or you have nothing. The secret is Christ. Well, Noah may have just been comfortable in his struggles. It's possible. But there may be another option here as well. Before I get there, let me just read you three more verses that show us how the Lord feels about us and about blessing us. Listen to this. James 1.17 Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. What are you saying, James? I'm saying that God is wanting to do good things in your life. He does. He does want to bless you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is the good to those who ask him? God wants to bless you. God wants to give you good things. And that's great news, especially if you're still in the ark, clinging to your struggles. God wants to give good things. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for Him. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Which brings us right back to Captain Rest. Noah. The man whose name means rest. I believe Noah's real motivation for staying put wasn't that he was comfortable in his struggles. I believe that Noah stayed put because he was comforted in his struggles. He knew who he trusted. He knew that God was in charge. He knew that the one who closed the door behind him was the Lord. And in the same way, I believe, no one knew that the one who would ultimately open the door for him and his family was the Lord. Now, my motivation in being in the ark for all that time would have been the second I saw dry land to jump over the side of the boat, to fall however many cubits down and break my legs just trying to get out. Noah stayed put because he trusted the Lord. 
Because like the psalm just read, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. And Noah was a patient man. People talk about the patience of Job. What about the patience of good old Noah who waited on God? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You see, Noah was comforted in God. That even in those dark stormy nights of being on the ark, going up and down the waves, listening to the rain crash, Noah found his comfort in the Lord. Because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah knew who he trusted and he knew God was in charge. And whether Noah was on the ark or not was completely beside the point. I believe that Noah waited that extra month because he hadn't heard the voice of the Lord saying, time to get out. Noah was waiting. Waiting patiently on the Lord. And now God says, verse 16, go. Go. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Do you remember what God said to Noah when it was time to enter the ark? Anybody remember what he said? Oh. Come. It's a famous word throughout Scripture. God is always saying come to people. But here's the point of this. God says come to those who are lost to those who need salvation, to those who need rescue, God says come. To those who have been saved, God says go. Come if you, if you need rescue. Come if you need protection from judgment. Come so that I can keep you from the time of trial that is about to hit. But once you've been saved, now the phrase is go. Go on out of the ark, Noah. Get your family. Get your sons. Get your wives. Go. Okay, Lord, well, what do you want me to go and do? What am I supposed to go and take care of? What am I supposed to do here? Well, it's very simple. Go and be fruitful. Go and multiply. Spread out on the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 18, uh, 28, 18 through 20, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Folks, that is the picture of fruitfulness. We've talked about many times the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, the point of the fruit, is to make disciples. That there's love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, and on and on in my life is for the purpose of making disciples. It's for the purpose of inviting, of saying, come to other people. But once I'm a saved person, God doesn't want me to sit on the ark. He wants me to go. Interesting story in Mark chapter 5. Jesus had gotten with his apostles into a boat, lots of crowds following him, pressing against him. And so they jumped into a boat and they traveled across the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Gerasenes. They get out of the boat, and one of my favorite depictions of this is in the movie Jesus. That you can, you can pick up or if, you, if you've seen it, it's really well done. But in the movie Jesus, he gets out of the boat and out of nowhere comes this naked, demon-possessed man has some chains hanging off him and he's screaming and yelling and slobbering and out of control and I don't know but if you're looking for a brief respite from the crowds this is not the kind of thing that we, I would get right back in the boat and begin to row as quickly as I could Jesus gets out of the boat and he, and he grabs hold of the guy and he says what is your name? and this demon possessed man says my name is Legion for we are many okay I've seen that movie I don't like that kind of stuff 
And then the demons inside this man began crying out to Jesus, Don't don't send us into the abyss. Whole another Bible study for another time. Many of you know about the abyss. Revelation chapter 9 and the, anyway, the pit. But don't send us there. Don't send us to that bad place. Send us to those pigs over there. So off they go into the pigs. And the pigs then go off the side of the cliff and into the sea and they all drown. And that's another story too. But now this demon-possessed man is sitting there in his right mind. The first time in years. This is a man who spent his life running among the tombs, screaming and yelling out of control. Now, demon-possessed or not, I believe that everybody has at least enough of a right mind to have some idea that their life is out of control. This guy had to live with that. He had chains on him because the people of, of nearby villages would chain him up to try and control him. And the demons were so powerful in the man that he broke the chains and lived among the tombs. And now for the first time in this guy's life, he is in his right mind. He's sitting there. He's, he's dressed. They've given him some clothes. And he's there with the apostles and with Jesus. And the people are coming from the town to see what, what had happened. They were all freaked out about it. And here sits this man. And all he wants in life is to be with Jesus. And he says, Lord, can I just be with you? Mark 5.18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. The one person on planet Earth who stopped long enough to care, who loved him, changed his life. And now all the man wanted was to follow Jesus. Let me come with you. And Jesus says no. No. No, you need to stay here. What? I mean, Jesus, you've called a lot of people to follow you. Here's a guy who would have a tremendous testimony. You could take him and put him up on stage and thousands of people could follow you, could find you because of his amazing story. Why don't you let him come with you? Jesus says to him in verse 19 of Mark chapter 5, Go. Go. You've been saved. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And verse 20 tells us that he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that means ten, the city, ten cities, what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. And if you read further in Mark, you discover that the next time Jesus crosses Galilee and comes to the region of the Gerasenes, it is, it is packed with people who know who Jesus is because this man heard the call and went. Jesus said, go. God said to Noah in the ark, go. Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with, wives with you. And bring out the, all the living things. And be fruitful. And multiply on the earth. And sometimes we ask, you know, we become saved people. We become rescued. We have come to the Lord. And he says, go. And we say, okay, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to go do? What's my ministry? What's my special calling? And a lot of times people, especially new in belief, get a little discouraged. Because we think, well, God wants me to go, but what am I supposed to do? I, I tried doing it in my church. They wouldn't let me do it. You know, or, or I, I tried to go out and, and I, I just can't figure, what am I supposed to do? What did God tell Noah to do? Be fruitful. Be fruitful. Okay, well that sounds really simple. How am I supposed to do that? You just do it. It's not that difficult. Sometimes we look so hard into specializing in ministry or, or being able to do that one thing that that other guy over there can do or, or that woman over there, she can do that. I wish I could do, I wish I could be. And God says, all you have to be is fruitful. 
Well, how do I be fruitful? Simple. Focus on me. You stay in my word. And you let it pour out of your life. Follow me. Go when I tell you to go. Verse 17, once again, starting over, God says, Noah, be fruitful. Now we come to a a touching and beautiful moment between Noah and the Lord. I think it's just, it's wonderful here. Verse 20, it tells us, Then, first thing Noah does, first thing he does out of the ark, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That's what the clean animals were for. That's why God said, take seven of those. Seven? That's an odd number. Yeah, one of them, one of them will be used for burnt offering. Seven? That's that perfect number again. But one is used for burnt offering, and then you have six of the clean animals to breed because God would be requiring offerings down the road and in the future. But listen to this. God did not require this offering of Noah. Noah just did it. God didn't tell Noah, I want you to offer some animals here. I need a sacrifice. Noah just did it. He got off of the ark, gathered his family around, took of the clean animals, and began a worship service to the Lord. No wonder Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. No wonder Noah and God had a special relationship. Noah did what people do who have been saved. They worship. They simply worship. I want you to flip real quickly. A couple of last things here to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 and verse 11. This is a tragic story really, although it's a story of healing. Listen to what what happens here. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Talking about Jesus here. And as he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. In other words, en route to the priests, they all completely got cleaned of their leprosy. An amazing miracle. Verse 15, Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. Then he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were not there ten cleansed, but the nine? Where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Stand up and go. (laughs) Go. Your faith has made you well. What does God want out of us? First and foremost, God wants us to worship Him. Sometimes when we're all concerned about our ministry and about our gifts and about our calling and about what we can do, we forget that the most important thing to do is simply to worship God. When Jesus was being tempted by Satan, Jesus said these words. He said, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. He didn't say serve the Lord your God and worship Him when you have time. He said, First, worship. Worship the Lord your God and then serve Him. The service will flow out of the worship, but the worship comes 
first. Noah gets out of the ark and folks, worship is so pleasing to God. He loves it. The Bible tells us, it goes on and says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, verse 21. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man. He smelled the aroma of the sacrifice. It was pleasing to him. Worship is always pleasing to God. He loves it. He loves the sound of it. Hebrews 13:15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That's the sacrifice God's looking for. That's what he wants. And God is obviously so moved, so touched by Noah's love offering, by the sacrifice, that he makes the first covenant that he will make with man. For the first time, God enters into a covenant relationship with man. And you'll notice, by the way, it had nothing to do with man. It had everything to do with God. God begins a promise. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now that sounds a little weird. Read that again. Look at what he's saying. I'm not going to curse the ground anymore because of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Well, if I was writing that, I would say, I'm going to keep cursing the ground because of man because the intent of his heart is evil from his youth. But God is saying something amazing here. He's saying, I know what man's heart is. I know that man's intent is evil. I know that man has a sin nature. I know that even Noah, this righteous man, is going to screw up. And he does in the next chapter. He takes care of it just like any of us would. I know that man is evil. I know the intentions of man's heart. But you know what? This man, even though he's a man like anybody else, he worshipped me. And that's what I long for. That's what I'm looking for. So even though man's heart is evil, I'm not going to curse the ground again on account of that. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. That's important because he will again destroy every living thing. But not as he has done. Verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 